From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 180 of the Killing It Killing podcast. Wait, that's a different voice I'm hearing. Uh, Ryan is here, but also joining us today, me. just a very, very special guest, Nadia Karatsorios. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. So we're only going to give you 15 seconds, but give us the 15 seconds or who are you and why are you a guest host? <laughs> I am not Dave Sobel and those are big, smart shoes to fill, um, but I am Nadia Karatsorios, as Carl mentioned, been in the channel for a really long time, super passionate about everything that we're going to talk about today and have been looking forward to this for a while. Very good. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, so we're going to kick off, as we always do, with a question of the day. What expensive thing is absolutely worth the money for you? So I will start off and I will say a lesson. I, I did not used to believe this. I had to be educated. Shoes, mm -hmm. right? Like I used to be the guy who would buy like a $59 pair of shoes and wear them until they made my toes really bleed and hurt and whatever. And I was like, <laughs> time for a new $59 pair of shoes. And I was educated well that... Uh, uh, a really good quality pair of shoes. They don't just look nice. It's an investment in quality of life. And so I, uh, I, I spend money on shoes in, well, I will say in the last two years, I haven't had any need for any brand new expensive shoes. That's actually, shoes. <laughs> I know I didn't, I didn't wear shoes. I, I wearing socks and closed toed shoes. What? <laughs> like that feels really unnatural, but uh, I, I will say now that the world is getting back after it, we're going back out there. I'm actually looking forward to a really nice pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. Makes all the difference. Nadia? You know what? For me, it's the latest and greatest Apple device. Up until a couple of years ago, I was that person where I was like, I can go with last year's Apple Watch. What's the big difference? <laughs> and then I see somebody else have it. I hear about somebody else having it. And then guess what I do? I buy two. Now I have last year's and <laughs> this year's. So it costs me almost double. So just go with the latest and greatest. It's totally worth it. So I have a different approach, which is I'm willing to spend an extra 10% on everything in my life. I literally like everything. I never buy the cheapest. I never, I rarely buy the most expensive, but I always buy like a notch up. Right. And for me, uh, I, I find that it's sort of an easy way to get a slightly higher level of quality, longer life. And every once in a while, I'll see something like, ah, I really should have got the better one. And then I move up. Um, but uh, I, I rarely also have the experience of, I really saved nothing by buying this cheap piece of crap and then throwing it away and buying two more. <laughs> uh, see, and again, that's uh, even as a technologist, that's been a lesson I had to get educated on. You know, that extra large hard drive, all that storage, I could probably save like $70 if I got the hard drive that was half as large. And I cannot tell you how many times that's come back to bite me in the butt over yes. the years. And so I, when, I, when I sell expensive technology to customers, it comes from the heart. <laughs> it's, it's not just <laughs> so it's more expensive. It's like, no, seriously, learn from my failures. It's, right. uh, it's well, actually worth it. I refer to it as saving the wrong pennies. Yes. Yes. 
Linode, a top infrastructure as a service provider, has resources specifically for helping MSPs explore the alternative cloud. Discover this growing market, one of the best kept secrets in building a scalable, thrivable, modern managed service provider business. Learn about the cloud provider landscape, improving KPIs, security, and more in Linode's free book, The MSP's Guide to Modern Cloud Infrastructure, available now. This resource and more at linode.com slash MSP radio. Alrighty, our first topic today is kind of an interesting article I saw on NextGov, which is about AI accountability. This is a topic we've talked about several times, and out of Berkeley comes a white paper that suggests that we really should have some form of redress, that basically if the government implements some artificial intelligence technology and something goes wrong, uh, it hurts your reputation, you get misidentified uh, in a crime video or something, uh, you know, there should be some way for you to say, hey, you know, your stupid AI isn't as intelligent as it should be. I was harmed. Uh, give me some money. So uh, I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm not sure that there's a way to regulate this well. And that's the problem is it's a it seems like a good idea. I'm not sure how the government gets it right. What do you guys think? I was going to say, you know, I think I think it's important for people that are worried about embracing it, that they feel the government has their back. So even just talking about the regulations, I think makes people feel more comfortable. But you're spot on. How, how does the government do it? Do they hire a bunch of really smart people to figure it out? Do we just keep talking about it and it never happens? It's it's definitely an interesting topic. See, I, I agree with your approach there. It's boundaries give us the permission to be aggressively innovative mm -hmm. within safety boundaries and limits, right? It's like cybersecurity. If there, if it's just the Wild West, we are, you know, the natural gut reaction is never log on. It's not safe out there, right? But if there are rules and there are boundaries then we get to be creative and innovative and free within those boundaries. And I kind of think that's where the AI thing goes, because Carl, you and I, we've been talking about this for years. There seems to be a tone to the conversation of AI could go wrong. That's scary. We should avoid innovation in that area. And that's a terrible thing for a technology yeah. industry to be like, no, don't innovate. That, that innovation is bad and scary. We should probably never do that like a little bit of guardrails would actually help us be more creative. Exactly. So I was listening to an interview over the weekend with somebody who works at Facebook talking about, you know, they've got this entire division to monitor posts and make sure that they're not uh, inappropriate because of, of violence or pornography or whatever. And they, they literally early on created this division thinking it would be temporary. Because, <laughs> right, the, the programming is going to just get smarter and smarter and smarter, and then AI is going to take over, and you'll never have any problems again. <laughs> so, so I think that's what we can look forward to with AI. Is you know, it does have this dream of a beautiful and amazing future, but human beings really have to kind of manage themselves and manage each other, and. I think there becomes more of a need for that over time than less. I could be very wrong, but this is the one technology that 
really might not make our lives as so obviously better that we won't go back. We might decide that eh, maybe it was better before. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, see, I, I don't know if you guys heard about recently the uh, uh, Capital Music Group. Uh, they signed an AI rapper mm-hmm. and, and they made a big old, you know, like, ooh-ha about the, isn't this creative and isn't this a great thing? And look, we can create content, not just analyze other people's content. And then it was online for less than one week and they had to take it offline because by listening to other rap music and the feedback from customers that were listening to it, it started to veer aggressively into racial stereotypes and aggressive misogyny and bigotry. Uh, Literally in less than a week, that's what the AI learned because that was the environment that it was dumped into. Uh, They made a great big fanfare and launched it and everybody was like, oh, creativity. And then they were like, yeah, so that didn't work at all in less than a freaking week. Well, and there have been other things with AI where they sort of release it into the wild and then have to shut it down because it just goes bad. And, you know, some of that is that the people who are most willing to manipulate, they're most willing to manipulate anything. So (laughs) whatever you throw them, they'll be like, oh, it's a new toy. It's like the robot I get to kick down the street, you know? See, but at first reaction, it sounds negative that it was only out for a week and then had to be taken down. But maybe that's a good thing. Like, hey, we can try these things and take it away if it doesn't work. Like we're not stuck with it for life. So right. maybe we spin that's, it into a positive. That's true. Yeah, nobody nobody says, oh man, you took away my AI. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're not going to hear someone crying about it. <laughs> exactly. And just because it got launched doesn't mean it was ready for prime time. Exactly. So yeah, kind of how innovation really happens. I always think that it's sort of one of these things that uh, as long as we get to try it in little bitty bits, we're going to mm. be safe. It, it, you know, as long as we don't pull the big switch and, you know, so it's like the classic uh, movie scenario. Oh, we'll just let the robots be in charge of the nuclear bombs, <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> See, but Nadia, to your point, I think um, we have a natural suspicion of the bureaucratic agility to be able to A, do a good job of content moderation or AI accountability, and then B, do it fast enough to keep up with this kind of like rocket science technology. But the one thing I think we've learned is you can't trust the big tech companies to Mm. police themselves because I think Meta, Facebook, Insta, et cetera, all of them like, y'all had a chance. You (laughs) You got to put it out there. And we said, no, no, you're the guys who invented it. You should be in charge of it. Um, that didn't work out. So another topic I wanted to talk about since since I'm here today is quiet quitting. Now, I think I heard this the first time back, what was it, July 2022? Some guy on TikTok started talking about that and saying, in this new world, burnout's a real thing. And quiet quitting is happening everywhere. And it's not just the Gen Z or the millennials. It's It's across the board. It's all of us even us with a little gray hair. So I wanted to talk to you guys about that today. What's your thoughts? Have you read about it? Do you have any opinions on it? Well, as Mr. Relax Focus Succeed, I'm all about work-life balance. But I do have to say the Reddit version of this is different than everybody else's. You know, the Reddit version is kind of a, I can get by with the minimal amount possible of human labor and they'll still pay me. Uh, versus the, you know, Harvard Business Review version, which is that 
people are willing to say, look, it's six o'clock. I'm going to spend time with my family now because even though I'm working remotely and even though no one's going to know the difference, I'm going to set limits. And I think that's a really, really good thing. Uh, and if there's one good thing that comes out of this global pandemic, I think setting limits on your life and, and having to be responsible for where the line is between work and not work is huge. I agree with that. See, and, and, it, and it goes to a, a more, again, it's not generational to Nadia's point, and it's not just the sneaky, cheaty version that, that people want it to be. Uh, I think the quitting word in the label makes people think, oh, no, you're just you're going away and you're sloughing off work and you're not actually being productive, where really once you get inside of it, it is fair boundaries and expectations. And the, the literally the very best way that I heard quiet quitting described was think of it as not act your age, but act your wage, mm -hmm. right? Like this is, this is the bargain that employers strike with employees. I want you to bring value to my organization. And in return, I will give you a, a great career opportunity and be a fulfilling opportunity, we hope, and cash money, right? Like I will give you those things in return for you doing things for my business. And then somewhere along the way, and we've all grown up in, right, for the last 20 odd years where employers are like, if you really cared, you'd work 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, you know, true believers in the company, they're the ones that work seven days a week. And do we give you a raise for that stuff? Oh, no, I thought you were a believer in the organization. I think that's dirty rotten. And I think that it's totally appropriate as a population dynamic that people go, um, I'll, I'll totally work 60 hours a week for you. If you want to pay me one and a half times what you're paying me, awesome. Let's make that bargain. Yeah, exactly. And I think we've glamorized, you know, working nights and weekends. You know, I, I won't mention a, a vendor I worked for had a, you know, a monthly employee of the month award. And every single time the description of the winner was they worked extra hours. They came in on the weekends. They did things outside of their job description. So for anybody that was wanting to win an award to be recognized, they felt they had to do that. And it's, again, it's this glamorize of never taking a vacation or, or never stepping away for lunch. And I think the best thing or one of the best things that came out of the pandemic was, you know what, maybe I do need a mental break. Maybe you'll get something better from me if I'm not burnt out. You'll get 100% of my focus within that time frame. And then guess what? I get to kind of just decompress over the weekend and come back and, and be a better me. So I think that that's a huge thing and a huge difference that we need to see. Yeah. The employee of the month award doesn't mean as much when it has to be presented to you in a hospital after your heart attack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> see, cold, hard reality. Yeah. <laughs> if you really loved working here, you'd have a heart attack. I'm just saying, you know, Bob had a heart attack. Yeah, Bob was, he was committed to the cause. See, but that's the thing, right? I think, and, and this kind of dovetails with a, a, another one of those, you know, mega pandemic trends that we've all been adapting to around remote work versus in the office versus hybrid and whatever. And in, in the show notes, we're also linking to an article that is, uh, you know, about an interview with Jamie Dimon, the, the illustrious CEO of JP Morgan Chase, who from the very, very beginning has been hard on the topic of, 
no more remote work. You must come back into the office, literally like from 2020. He was like, you must be in the office. But if you if you get past his bluster and you, you actually analyze the reason why, it comes down to, well, because I need to, A, increase your productivity, code for I need to micromanage you and make you grind while you are working. And then mm -hmm. B, well, I can't create community and engagement and make people part of our family at the organization unless they're in the office five days a week. And Nadia, I'd love to get your perspective on that because what you do in this industry, right? You do community in the channel and, and is it required that you are in the same physical space with somebody five days a week to create meaningful relationships and lasting community? You know, I've debated changing my last name to community because it's easier for people to pronounce. Like, you know how passionate I am about the community and specifically in this industry. And, and yes, I would have said if we had this podcast 10 years ago, which we probably wouldn't, but if, if we were sitting down at a table at an event, I would say 10 years ago, we got to get together. We got to get into the office. We got to get to every single event and sit down. But if there's anything we've learned, and even this is pre-pandemic, is that online communities are a real thing. Like I literally sit down every night at the end of the day and go through all my Facebook forums, see what MSPs are talking about, see what they need help with. And I'm seeing these people network from all different sides of the world, helping each other out. And this is a real community. So, you know, just building a community, no, you don't need to be together all the time. A community can be built in so many different ways. And then as far as, you know, working together, you know, I do miss seeing my colleagues. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I wish I could walk over, tap somebody right. on the shoulder and ask a question, or maybe even tap them on the shoulder and say, what did you do this weekend? But then there's this cool thing called text messaging. Hey, there's this cool <laughs> thing called telephones. Like we can still talk to each other. So I just think it takes that extra effort. And I, you know, I've been uh, away from events for a while, you know, between the pandemic and, and my personal life, I haven't been to a physical event in over three years. I'm about to go to my first one in three years in a couple of weeks, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm excited. I'm excited because I get to see people, but you know, Hey, I, I still have friends. Like we're still talking here and it's like, it's been years since I've seen you guys, but honestly, does it feel that way? Not at all. <laughs> See, and Carl, I'd love to get your point of view on that as well, because like for as long as you have been a Microsoft profession, right? How many times have you actually been in the office in Redmond, like with the Microsoft people? I'm sure you've done it, but how many times have you actually done that? Well, so none in the last 12 years. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 you know, when I was at the peak of like being involved in partner programs and, and uh, development teams and all that, uh, it was once or twice a year. It was, and it was did you, never and did you feel, con did you feel connected I to felt those totally people? Connected. Well, the other thing is just before we run out of time is that I, I think a, a big piece of this is that people have learned a new way of working. Like there's three years of people who've graduated from whatever high school or college worked into the workplace and, and have been born in a remote world, right? Their, mm -hmm. their work ethic is born in a remote world and they kind of you know get up check out what's going on on the east coast you know check out spend time with the family get the kids off to work or school uh check back in you know do a bunch of work take a break in the afternoon walk the dog you know what i mean they yeah. probably spread their workout over 10 or 11 hours but they're far more relaxed far more productive they literally have built a balance 
uh, in real time between their work and their life. And if you tell them, oh, no, uh, I need you to drive an hour and a half and then check in for eight hours <laughs> and then drive an hour and a half back home, they'll be like, I'm going to quietly quit. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe even louder that, quit. <laughs> yeah, that quitting is not going to be theoretical. <laughs> <laughs> That's some real quitting right there. Exactly. Um, so uh, let's shift over to our third topic here. And this one is, it's an interesting evolution of something we used to think of as exclusive to the domain of IT people, the right to repair, right? We've been talking mm. for years about like these devices are our devices. They they contain all of our personal information. They are with us 24-7, unfortunately. And they are a like a legitimate extension of our connection to the world. And then we were told, yeah, but if you crack open the case, you void the warranty and you're not allowed to do that. And the, the world at large, especially those of us that do, I don't know, repair and maintenance and management services for a living, we looked at that aftermarket forbidden touching as like, hey, wait a minute. Like now you're constricting not just the device, but all of the community of commerce that goes around that. Well, guess what? Apparently, this is not just about IT devices because we're linking to an article here from Wired that's talking about the question of right to repair around your John Deere tractor. Now, what I learned in the process, and, and, and this has been something impressed on me over the last several years, you have no clue how much that tractor costs. If you, if you are not a farmer, <laughs> if you do not do that stuff for a living, you will see what the price of one of those great big green machines is, and it will blow your freaking mind. And oh, by the way, they want you to have a great experience. So they don't allow you to update the software or the hardware, anything to do with the operating experience of that device, even though you just spent like a quarter of a million dollars on a big green tractor. So my question to you guys is, does this advance the conversation around the right to repair? And do you think that the IT folks among us are about to learn some lessons from the farm? Well, I think my favorite term of 2022 so far is jailbreaking a John Deere. I mean, I just think that's the coolest <laughs> concept ever. <right? laughs> but, you know, it is, it's the same exact discussion as what we have in IT, right? Mm -hmm. Should you be able to replace the, the battery on your iPhone? Well, one simple answer is yes. Another simple answer is, and then you break it and then you want them to replace it on a warranty or you touch the wrong thing and you have no idea what you did because it's not what you do for a living, right? There's, there's both sides of this issue, but ultimately I think the right to repair has to win simply because if it doesn't, we throw the John Deere in the uh, uh, dustbin and buy another one. And that's just, that is not going to happen. <laughs> right? that's not an and that's true. It's going to be true with everything that we connect technology to. You're going to have to be able to um, legitimately repair these things. And yeah, there have to be some guidelines, but I don't see, I don't see any argument for the other side of the argument. <laughs> I think you said the key term there, guidelines. I think you have to make it clear. It's, you know, if you want to paint it orange because it goes with your company logo, that's fine. That's not going to affect it. But as you said, if you don't know what you're doing and you do something wrong, like as I put my MSP hat on, you know, I'm thinking like an MSP right now. If you let, if you let your customers go in and fiddle with the servers, what kind of messes are going to be at the end? Well, so that's a question, a follow-up for that. So I want to be able to repair my whatever laptop. But 
the the company bonovo hp whoever doesn't want me to do that myself so then i said well no i get to do that because i'm a professional mm-hmm. and now you're saying but i don't want my client to replace the battery on their laptop because they're not a professional so is it essentially the exact same thing i just happen to be the one that gets to look at both sides and say no i'm the only one who can make this decision i i, I think so yeah like i think it's you know, and, and maybe because I'm thinking about certifications, I'm thinking you gotta, you gotta be the right person. You gotta know what you're doing. And like, you know, we can all call ourselves professionals and everything. Like, you know, I, I used to fix my family's VCR. Does that make me a professional VCR repair person? Probably not. I was like four years old. Um, so no, but I think at four, you I only broke VCRs. I'll just be honest about that. <laughs> Yeah. And I was the one fixing it. Um, But you know, it's the, you got to know what you're doing. Maybe you're certified. Maybe you've taken a course, you know, maybe you have that badge on your signature, but I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable thinking about somebody playing with something that they're not supposed to, and then expect to have the the warranty and and have someone else fix it for them once they've made the mess. See, and and I think you, you get to the essence of this in our world, in the business conversation, it is, you should have the right to repair, but you should also have the ownership of the consequences that come mm-hmm. with doing it poorly. And if you get inside there with, with your big old sausage fingers and mess things up and, and you void the warranty, quote unquote, okay, cool, you, you could do that. But if you did it well, just the concept of cracking open the case should not be against the rules. It, it brings me back to that conversation in the channel, right? We all spend a lot of time talking about not just the technical implications of um, not the, uh, of certification and training, but the business implications, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I'm an MSP and I represent three different hardware manufacturers and four different storage and networking manufacturers and a couple of operating systems and a couple of security platforms. And every one of them wants me to have an entry and a silver and a pro certification for every one of my texts. And I look at that and I think, um, do y'all realize just how much it costs for us to keep up with all of those things? In isolation, every certification has a noble intention. It has the intention of saying, I would like for you to work on my branded equipment out there in the field in a way that increases the customer's satisfaction with that stuff and does not decrease their satisfaction. But when you multiply that by the, you know, the average MSP portfolio of 30 or 40 different vendors who each want multiple layers of technical and sales training and certification, there, there comes a point of, um, are we certifying for the good of the customer or is this just a, a mechanism for making it harder for an MSP to work with one of my competitors? Because you know, if you're making money with me and you've got to have 77 certifications, you're going to be really reluctant to take on a second vendor. And, oh, wait a second, is that the consequence? It's almost like as a vendor, I didn't realize that that was going on. (laughs) Well, you know, the interesting thing in our industry is that we do choose to certify. We do, Mm -hmm. like, people go, I'm going to get a Cisco certification, right? I'm going to do that. And why am I going to do that? Because I'm going to make money if I do that, right? So there, there is some piece of that. But at the end of the day... Uh, an end user can log in, follow your checklist, back up the configuration of their Cisco device, 
and open a port. Like you can give them a checklist to make sure that they don't screw this up. Is that smart, right? Because there really is kind of this wall where you don't know what you don't know. Oh, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't really change anything. Really? Like you didn't really change anything? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why it doesn't work anymore. So, yeah. So, so, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do where it does not take certification, mm -hmm. but we make it feel like it should have certification. And so moving around in the right to repair, I think you know, it goes back to ultimately there's rights and responsibilities. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, you can fix your own stuff, but even in managed service, our contract says, we do all the work. So mm -hmm. if you install an update and you break a bunch of stuff because you didn't know, you know, the little things that we know, then I'm going to charge you to fix that. So as long as you're willing to take that chance, right, you can make a $70,000 mistake with your tractor and it's on you, right? Yep. <laughs> it's not on John Deere. And that might be the level of consequence that everybody needs to be educated on, right? Like, if I mess up one little thing and it's a $25 fix because somebody can just remote in and refix that configuration and go, stop it. Like, you know, like stop, stop turning that switch on your, on your operating system because it has consequences. We might never learn that lesson, but the lesson of it's a $250,000 device and now it's stuck in the middle of a field for reasons that are entirely your fault. Um, you might think twice about cracking open the hood on that thing again. Very good. Sadly, we're out of time, but hey, we would love to have your comments and questions and feedback. Like it, share it, uh, tell your friends about it, and make sure that you subscribe on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcatcher is. And that will do it. Thank you, Nadia, for joining us today. That will do it for episode 180 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.